From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. All are responsible for all, meaning all human beings are responsible for all other human beings. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio testimonials we find all over the world. We listen to whatever we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week. If we took that as our motto in America, our rate of violence would plummet. Today, we devote the entire hour to one story, told by Samantha Brown, a radio producer at Atlantic Public Media and Transom.org. When Transom released Sam's powerful, personal piece earlier this year, we immediately knew that we wanted to share it far and wide. It doesn't really need an introduction, other than it's about how one event affected her, her family, and the criminal justice system. And just a note, The story contains descriptions of a violent crime that may not be suitable for everyone. Here is A Life Sentence, Victims, Offenders, Justice, and My Mother, produced by Samantha Brown and Jay Allison. Here's Sam. There's no way to ease into this story, so I'll just start. In 1994, my mother was the victim of a violent crime. She was 55 years old and living alone in Nyack, New York. On the evening of September 21st, a stranger came into her backyard. The stranger attacked her from behind. Five hours later, he left her lying on her bed, hands and feet bound with tape. Alive, she survived. Whatever horrible thing you imagined happened to her in those five hours likely did, I still find it hard to believe, to accept what she went through. I know that a lot of people have been the victims of crimes. I've had my car stolen, my apartment broken into. I felt violated after those events. But what happened to my mom was unimaginable, undigestible. What happened to her changed our view of the world. When Reginald McFadden was arrested and charged with the crimes against my mom, my feelings shifted from terror to outrage. I wanted someone to take responsibility for what went wrong which is how I ended up testifying in front of a Senate Judiciary hearing in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I would like to thank Governor Ridge, Attorney General Priate, Chairman Greenleaf. That's me in February 1995 in front of a panel of Pennsylvania senators and a room full of reporters, and I'm pissed. I am here today because last July, Reginald McFadden, a convicted murderer, was released from a Pennsylvania prison. It turned out that the guy who randomly attacked my mom was a convicted murderer, and his life sentence without parole had been commuted. After 24 years, he walked out of prison in Pennsylvania and within days moved to Nyack, New York, less than a mile from where my mother lived. On September 21st, while my mother was taking out her garbage, Reginald McFadden Just take your time. Reginald McFadden brutally attacked, then beat, robbed, repeatedly raped, and kidnapped my mother during a five-hour ordeal. I couldn't understand how Reginald McFadden had been let out of prison, and I wanted to be sure whatever crack he slipped through was sealed shut. 
Little did I know that my mom's case and my emotional testimony would be used to seal a lot more than a crack. I'll come back to this later. But for now, I want you to know this. Trauma stains permanently. Even though this happened 20 years ago, I know that it haunts my mother still, every day. It still haunts her every day. The reality is, it haunts me too. I know I can't make what happened go away, but I wondered if I turned and faced it, if I could shift things, forgive, reconcile, something. I've already told you this isn't an easy story to tell. It won't be an easy one to listen to. There's no avoiding the violence or the tears and the telling of it. The impact of this crime was obviously profound for my mother and for our family, but the repercussions didn't stop there. I suppose I could start this story with how the system failed, or with McFadden's family in Philadelphia. I could start with the thousands of prisoners whose hopes for a second chance were obliterated because of what McFadden did in 1994. Or I could tell you about the political careers, both launched and destroyed. But instead, I think I'll save those parts and start where I usually start, which is with my mother. And how are you feeling about today? Well, I'm curious what you're going to ask me about. Well, I thought today we would talk about September 21st. Um... I have to say, I'm feeling nervous about talking about it because I don't know that you and I have ever sat across from each other and had this conversation. I guess for me, it's, <clears throat> it's easier when I'm talking to strangers or when I'm just talking about um, how I survived. But when I tell a, a loved one, it's much deeper. It just goes deeper into what really happened to my spirit, my soul. Are you, are you, um, are you okay to do this? I'd like to try. I'd like to try. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to try too. And, but I, I worry about it being hard for you. You know, like, I, I guess I worry that it will bring it to the surface in a way that maybe it hasn't been or doesn't have to be or that might be hard for you. No, I think we need to try this because we've decided to do it and we're not quitters, are we? <laughs> Let's try it. By the way, my mom is Jeremy Brown. She's in her mid-70s now, but you'd never know it. She looks 15 years younger. She's bright-eyed and elegant and full of life. In the fall of 1994, she was living in a little house she had bought after she and my father divorced. I lived there with her for a year or so, working and saving money for graduate school. I moved out at the beginning of September. It was the first time in my mother's adult life that she was living alone. I was never afraid of anybody. I, was, I felt very safe. Do you remember the day of September 21st? Do you remember, was it sunny? Did you go to work? What kind of, do you remember anything about the day? My memory is that it was a very ordinary day of going to work. When this happened, my mom was working as a drug and alcohol counselor, helping people kick addictions. 
When she got home that night... It was time, I thought, to get the the recyclables outside and the garbage down to the curb. She went out the kitchen into the breezeway. Through the door, and the moon was out, and it was lovely out. She bent over to pick up the box of recyclables and was struck with a fist, a pipe. It was like if somebody threw a bowling ball at your back. That's how hard it hit me. Her arms were pinned behind her. This person put his face right in my neck next to my ear. My mother screamed. He kept yelling, shut up in my ear, shut up. She struggled. She even bit down on the gloved hand he put over her mouth. Did you see him? No, he was behind me. And um, after I bit him was when, I believe, he began to hit me in my head and only in my head until I passed out. My mom grew up about 20 minutes from where she was living in 1994. She is the youngest of five children. Her father was an apple and peach farmer. The story goes that she was supposed to be a boy, which is how she ended up with the name Jeremy. When she was old enough to leave home, she tried college but dropped out and moved into New York City to make a go of it as a singer. She was in the chorus of My Fair Lady on Broadway when she met my dad. My mom stopped auditioning in the city once she had my brother and me, but she never gave up singing or the theater. It wasn't until her early 50s that she became certified as a drug and alcoholism counselor. She was really good at it. McFadden pulled my mother up and pushed her toward the house. One of her eye sockets was broken, her nose fractured, her teeth knocked loose, her eyes were swelling shut. McFadden demanded she not look at him. When they got in the house, he draped a towel over my mother's head. And he started to take my pants off. And I remember so clearly thinking, what in the world is he doing? By then, I was a typical rape victim. You go to a place where you have no idea what's going on. None of the words that apply to what's going on come into your head. You're in a space that just does not understand anything. (laughs) So that you can look down at a strange man pulling your pants off and think, why is he doing this? What is this? I... I don't remember specifically much after that, except that he did rape me on that bed, my bed. McFadden started to ask my mom all sorts of questions. She decided not to lie about anything. Her sense was, if she was honest, she might connect to something in him. Something beneath the violence. Innately, I just knew that I should talk very straight and calmly to this guy and not let him get me hysterical. Because I just just sort of had a feeling that if I got hysterical, I'd die. What my mother had no way of knowing then was that McFadden did plan to kill her. In fact, he had murdered Robert Silk on Long Island just a week before. The week after he attacked my mom, he sexually assaulted and killed 78-year-old Margaret Keerer, also on Long Island and Dana DeMarco in Rockland County the week after that. She was 39 years old. The police eventually referred to McFadden as a serial killer. My mother, it turned out, was his only surviving victim. 
Stories like this get shortened over time to sentences like the one I started with. My mother is the victim of a violent crime. And usually, you leave it at that. I know it's hard to hear the details, but it's important because they haunt both victims and communities. So let me try to tell you in a condensed version, for all our sakes, the rest of what happened to my mother that night. McFadden put my mother in a sleeping bag and took her in her own car to various ATMs to steal her money. He beat her when she tried to escape. There was one point during the night, and this is key, that my mother finally saw him. They were standing in front of a bureau that had a mirror hanging over it. They were looking through her jewelry. And I just tipped my head up enough so that my eyes came out from under the, the towel and... In the mirror, I saw him behind me, and he was a black man, and he needed a shave. What did you think when you you saw him? I remember thinking he is cleaner and neater than you would think a criminal doing all these horrible things would be. To me, he was not the stereotypical criminal. At the end of the night, he took my mother to a place we now know was off the Garden State Parkway. It's the same spot he took Dana DeMarco three weeks later, and where they later found DeMarco's body. He raped my mother again, and then... He put both his hands on my neck and started to strangle me. But here is the miracle of all times. I put my hands on top of his, and I said in a little voice, what are you doing? You're hurting me. And he let go. What do you think happened? What do you think happened in that moment? I hate to use the words like, bond or love or anything like that but by then he felt bonded somehow or other enough to me to respect me I think he lost the the drive if you're going to kill a lamb you're going to have to do it very quickly right (laughs) Because if you start to look at the lamb or listen to the lamb or play with the lamb, you're not going to hurt it. And I think that's what happened. McFadden brought my mother back to her house, bound her hands and feet with tape, and eventually he walked out. It was close to three in the morning when my mother reached for a phone. She called my brother, who lived nearby. And I just flew down that stairs. I don't even remember my feet hitting the stairs into his arms. And he was screaming. And he was spinning around for some reason. He sort of put his arms up over his head and he was running around and around. And I'm holding him and grabbing him and trying to stop him. Just, just kept saying, it's okay, it's okay, get me to the hospital. When I got the call that this happened, I packed up my belongings at graduate school and I headed home. When I arrived at the hospital the next day and saw her barely recognizable face, 
my mother tells me I screamed. My heart had never been broken like this before. I had never been exposed to such violence, never felt the rage that it inspired in me, never imagined I would want revenge like I wanted revenge on Reginald McFadden. It's difficult to look beyond the devastating details of what happened to my mother that night. But when I do, I see that in the big picture, other things matter too. For example, that McFadden was poor and black, that he was a repeat offender who had attacked a random victim, and that my mother was white, middle class, and innocent. The fact is, crimes like these are rare, but it's crimes like these that inspire fear and outrage in communities across the country, and crimes like these that change things, which is exactly what happened next. But in the moments before this became swept up in the media, before it became a manhunt, before a jury was selected and a verdict issued, before it ruined some careers and made others, before it was used to change laws and keep far too many people locked behind bars. In the moments before all that, and in every single moment since, there is simply the unbelievable truth that this happened to my mother. Reginald McFadden was found guilty of raping, robbing, and beating a 55-year-old woman. McFadden it did not take the jury long to return a verdict yesterday, 15 minutes. Today's verdict means an end to a long and painful ordeal for the victim in this case. Most rape victims prefer to remain anonymous, not this 55-year-old social worker. My name is Jeremy. Jeremy Brown. How wonderful it feels to tell you who I am. Once the trial was over, my mother went public. She gave speeches, made appearances on TV. She was named a Woman of the Year by CBS. Has uh, Jeremy Brown earned a place uh, of honor in the history of, uh, of rape convictions? She certainly has, and she is certainly, I know, um, an inspiration to many of the women who have not had um, the ability to, to go forward. Beyond the amazing fact that she had survived the attack, there was another reason my mother wanted to speak out. It's that she had survived the trial, too. In one of the most surreal twists of this whole ordeal, Reginald McFadden defended himself in court, which meant he cross-examined my mother. Trial transcripts show exchanges like this. McFadden asked, But at some time in that night, your attacker got out the car and walked around and closed the door and hollered at you? My mother replied, I think he did. He... You beat on me from the front seat, and I was very scared. I thought you were going to kill me right then. Basically, I'm mad as hell, and I got to talk about it. Think about being tortured by a stranger for five hours. Think about listening to his voice tell you all those disgusting things to do for five hours. And then have to sit in a courtroom, listen to people call him Mr. McFadden. And think what it would do to you to have him say your name. My mother shared her story because she felt better when she did, or at least less alone, and because she hoped that by speaking out, it might change things for herself, for others. The day after McFadden's sentencing, I returned to graduate school. Eventually, my mother started working again as an addiction counselor. She even moved back into her house. It wasn't easy, but it was important, she said, that he not take the house away from her. 
A few years ago, nearly 20 years after the attack, my mother and her longtime boyfriend settled into a new home, one near me on Cape Cod. Her post-traumatic stress came with her too. The ghost of McFadden watched from the woods near her house. He waited for her in the living room. He crept up the stairs at night. Seeing my mother struggle as she tried to settle into her new home brought the trauma to the surface for me too. That's when I decided, with my mother's blessing, that I needed to do something, to talk to others. And ultimately, I wondered if my mom and I would feel better. I drew up a list of names, cops, politicians, journalists, academics, other victims, and my brother. Are you nervous? Not really, no. Are you uncomfortable? I'm a little impatient. So, yes, okay. Okay. Anyway, I wanted to say, uh, see you're chewing your gum. I know, but you're talking. But I can hear it. Okay. Tim is older than me, but only by 15 months. It's an age difference that has stopped mattering now that we're both approaching 50. He says he's not nervous, but he's working his gum pretty hard. Do you remember what happened when you got to the house? Yeah, it was just really weird. It was odd and it was quiet. You probably remember that Tim was the first person to see my mom the night she was attacked. In 20 years, we've never discussed any of it. We don't have much practice talking about difficult things. Um, do you have do you have any questions about it that you've never had no, answers? I don't. You know, I almost part of me is like I guess I don't know, maybe I'm in denial about it. I don't know. But you know, a lot of people have been through a lot of really bad shit. And that includes seeing people killed, car accidents, going to war physical abuse, you name it. It's all out there, you know? So I don't think about why or why my mother or, you know, it's a f***ing horrible thing that happened, really bad. But she's alive and, you know, she she's a completely physically capable person of living a full and rich life. And, and it was a long time ago. Um... But I don't, I don't, as far as I know, I don't carry it around with me as like, you know, some weight or stone or what have you. I do still carry it with me. It stalks me from the inside. Sometimes it sits so quietly, I think it might be gone. But other times it courses through my system with such surprise and force, it makes me dizzy. I explain to Tim that I'm headed out to find the others who were affected by this event. I tell him I have questions, and I think talking to others will help somehow. I tell him I think about forgiveness. I know my mother is very clear. She'll never forgive McFadden. But for me, forgiveness always seemed like an ultimate goal, the brass ring in situations like this, that it might finally provide some sort of relief. Do you think you've forgiven him? No. Do you think you need to or want to? Me? Not particularly. Fuck him. I don't give a shit about him. I don't even really like discussing it, to be honest with you. Although this has been okay. Why so, don't you like discussing it? I don't really see the point. I wish I had a little bit of that. I mean, I'm doing the opposite thing here, right? I'm like yeah. talking to lots of people that I, what do you think right. of that? What do you think about me talking to lots I, of I'm people? I'm not, I'm kind of curious what the point of the whole project is, but 
go for it, you know? Let's see where it goes. I don't know. Good for you. Better you than me. I hope he's right. Near the top of my list of people to talk to were the men who had voted on McFadden's commutation from prison in Pennsylvania. Some background first. In Pennsylvania, the only way out for lifers, besides escape or death, is to have their sentence commuted. Historically, commutation has been common practice in Pennsylvania. It serves as a release valve, a way to control the size of prison populations, reward good behavior, and give prisoners sentenced to life hope for a second chance. After serving 25 to 30 years of a life sentence, if lifers show remorse and behave themselves in prison, they have a shot at commutation. The crime McFadden was seeking commutation for happened in 1969. He was convicted, along with two other young men, of the burglary and murder of Sonia Rosenbaum, a 60-year-old woman in Philadelphia. McFadden was 16 years old at the time. His record was already filled with over a dozen arrests, and for this crime, he was sentenced to life without parole. By 1992, McFadden had been in prison for just over 20 years. He had applied for commutation seven times with no luck. The eighth time was different. He succeeded. I was, I was very skeptical to my uh, fellow pardons board members. Republican Ernest Preate was the attorney general for Pennsylvania in the late 80s, early 90s. He was the only person to vote no on McFadden's commutation. I said, I don't, I don't like this guy. I don't think he's ready to go. I'm very, very hesitant to recommend, recommend him uh, to the governor. Preate was hesitant for another reason. It turns out McFadden had ratted on fellow prisoners twice, once during an attack on a guard in a Pittsburgh prison and then during the violent riots that erupted at the Camp Hill prison in the 1980s. The department was recommending him. The Department of Corrections was recommending him. So the, this was part of the payback to, the, to McFadden was, we'll recommend you for uh, a commutation um, because you've been helpful to us in dealing with the riot at Camp Hill. I spoke to several people off the record, academics, prison activists, former Department of Corrections employees. They all mentioned McFadden's role in the Camp Hill riots as a factor in his release. They said things like his commutation seemed like a done deal or that it was rushed through. Some even wondered if McFadden's records had been scrubbed. Despite multiple requests, no one from the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections or their press office would go on record with me to confirm or deny this. I have a feeling this is going to be grueling, huh? I get the sense that you're scared I'm going to... I'm scared of something. I don't know what it is. <laughs> well, the, I'm nervous about this. It's, I, I mean, I have thought a lot about you over the last 20 years. Five people sit on the Pennsylvania Board of Pardons. When McFadden applied for commutation in 1992, Democrat Mark Single was the lieutenant governor and the head of the board. Although his vote counted the same as everyone else's, it was Mark Single more than anyone who was blamed for what happened once McFadden got out. He was the former board member I most wanted to talk to. When I thought of other people who must be haunted by this event, I thought, Mark Single. The Board of Pardons was always skeptical. I mean, the numbers of people that we even considered was uh, minuscule, microscopic. The board never met Reginald McFadden. Amazingly, that's not part of the commutation process in Pennsylvania. But others spoke on his behalf, and McFadden had to submit piles of paperwork, including descriptions of past crimes, names of current sponsors, and accomplishments in prison. What I recall about the 
McFadden presentation was that everybody was on board. The psychologist and the uh, warden and the corrections people uh, were all saying that this is somebody who had done extraordinarily well. The board voted four to one in favor of McFadden's commutation. Single voted yes. He believed he was doing the right thing. I have to tell you that my own personal background, I grew up in a very um, Catholic and a a specific type of Catholicism, Byzantine Catholic. When we were uh, very young, the whole family would go in and sing the Mass every day in Old Slavonic, which is a version of Russian. And the phrase that uh, we would sing over a hundred times during the uh, liturgy was Hospodi Pomiloi, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. And my, um, my family believed in that. That makes you emotional. Yeah, yeah. So you felt like you were here you were in a position to have mercy on people. To do my job as a human being, not just as the uh, lieutenant governor. When McFadden walked out of prison, he was 42 and had never spent a day of his adult life as a free man. Surprisingly, McFadden didn't go to a halfway house, a bureaucratic oversight. McFadden's transition didn't go well. Within a month, he went through two or three jobs and started stealing from his roommate. Within two months, he started to spiral out of control, killing Robert Silk, Margaret Keirer, and Dana DeMarco, and of course, attacking my mom. During the first week of October, just 92 days after he was released from prison, Reginald McFadden was arrested as the prime suspect of these crimes. News of McFadden's arrest arrived in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where Democrat Mark Single was ahead in the governor's race against Republican Tom Ridge. In October of 1994, Tom Ridge wasn't well known, not even in Pennsylvania. He was a congressman representing a small rural district. Mark Single, on the other hand, had been the lieutenant governor for nearly eight years. The feeling across the state was that Mark Single was a shoe-in. So they were ready to just simply transfer the the mantle, and I could feel it all across Pennsylvania. Tom Ridge never got close, never got close. And then McFadden happened. And all they had to do was to put an ad up and put McFadden's picture out there and say, see, we told you, this is what happens when you're weak on crime. Mark Single votes to free a convicted murderer. The man Mark Single voted to free is arrested for rape and murder. Mark Single, bad judgment, too liberal on crime. How can we ever trust him again? There's a better choice. Tom Ridge, the judgment and character we trust. And then everything shifted. The whole tectonic plates of my universe changed and... uh, We watched that campaign disintegrate. It went from an eight-point lead to uh, us being seven points behind in 48 hours. 15-point swing. I've never, ever seen that in politics. Mark Single's career as a politician was over, and Tom Ridges was about to soar. My understanding is that, uh, from what I've read and from what I remember, that Reginald McFadden was a real turning point in the election, did, did, did you, do you see it that way? Well, I can't, I mean, I can't doubt that it had an impact. Uh, but from my perspective, what it did for me 
was put an exclamation point on what I've been talking about for over a year. It took months and a lot of persistence to land an interview with Tom Ridge. I met him in a huge suite of offices in downtown Washington, D.C., where he now runs a political consulting firm. In 2001, George W. Bush asked Ridge to leave his post as governor of Pennsylvania and to join him at the White House to head up what would become the new Department of Homeland Security. But back in 1995, having beaten Mark Single in the election, Tom Ridge was being sworn in as the governor of Pennsylvania. The main thing that won him the election was his stance on crime. And so once elected, what did you feel your mandate was then on this issue? Well, I told folks, if you elect me, one of the first things I'm going to do, I'm going to call a special session on crime, and that's exactly what we did. The same special session on crime that I testified in, the same special session that focused on getting tough and essentially putting an end to any chance of commutation for lifers. Here's the thing. This was the mid-'90s. Crime was one of the top issues on most voters' minds in Pennsylvania and across the country. People wanted to feel safe. For Tom Ridge, who was already running as a tough-on-crime candidate, Reginald McFadden's spree was, strange to say, perfectly timed. Although sprees like McFadden's are extremely rare, it had the exact class and racial components to draw in the media and incite public hysteria. You know, I, a lot of people who I've spoken to talk about the constitutional changes that went into effect as a result of the special session and that that makes it nearly impossible for people to have their sentence commuted. And I, as a person who testified at that special session and <clears throat> perhaps contributed to those changes being made, I think about that a lot because I think I think about the lives that are being impacted. Do, do you ever think about those changes and wonder if perhaps they're too strict or wonder about the impact of, of those changes and the reduced number of people getting commuted? Uh, candidly, uh, it's a fair question, and I haven't given it much thought. Most of my opinions I hold today, I held 20 or 30 years ago, but not all of them. So. I've asked everybody this question, um, and I think all the people that I'm meeting with are I'm choosing because I believe this incident changed their life personally. Yeah. And I'm wondering how you think this incident, McFadden, changed your life personally. Well, I hope you're not disappointed, but I'm not sure it did. It changed uh, your mother's life. It changed the lives of many families. It certainly, in a positive way, I'd like to think, changed the lives of hundreds, if not thousands, of other families and victims. But for me personally, um, the only thing it did was reaffirm in my own mind that the approach I took towards reforming some of the criminal justice system was the right thing to do. I think my personal connection to all this made some of the people I interviewed nervous and careful. That's understandable. And it made me all the more grateful to Mark Single, the guy who lost the election, for the way he talked to me. Like when I asked him difficult questions like this one. If you had the chance to um, say something to my mom or to the family members of, of the other... <laughs> Just that I'm terribly sorry that uh, 
I feel, to the people who were the immediate victims, I hurt them. And I didn't mean to. So there you have it. <laughs> Hearing Mark Single say this eased something in me. My mother felt the same way when I played it for her. It's wonderful that he expressed such personal feelings with you, because that's the human being. Um, the, the last time we talked and we went through what happened on September 21st, how was that for you? I think it went pretty well. I do. Um, is it difficult for me to share it or to to revisit it? No, I. It's a reality for me. I guess the difficulty is carrying it around. And what what are your what are the scars that you have from this? And I, I don't know if you actually have physical scars, but what, any kind of scars. What what are the scars that you have? I can't sing. That's it. It's huge. What does it mean for you not to be able to sing? Well, I was a bird who could sing. <laughs> I could sing, right? But I cry, so I, it stops me. And that's very painful. Because that was who I was. I was a girl who was born with a voice, and I could sing. I can't now. It's true. My mother was not only a singer on Broadway, but she used to be one of those people who would break into song in public places. I haven't heard her do that in years. By this time, I had been working on this project for well over a year. I knew there were lifers in Pennsylvania prisons who were living with the outcome of Tom Ridge's special session on crime. I wanted to know what this meant for them and what it meant for those who ran the prisons. Before I get to them, though, there is someone else I want to talk about first. Let me just say, I really appreciate that. I I appreciate that you're sitting here because mm -hmm. I've thought about you for a long time, your family, and mm -hmm. it took me 20 years to pick up the phone and figure out where you were. And even once I thought I knew your number, it took me a long time to make the call. Mm -hmm. And then it, I felt bad every time I called back because I thought they don't want to talk to me, you know. And you know what? It's true. Your feelings led you right, but look where it put you. It was mid-July, hot, and I was sitting in a car with Charlotte McFadden, Reginald's youngest sister. We were in front of her house in Philadelphia, the house McFadden grew up in. Charlotte had no idea I was coming. Neither did I, until I decided to the day before. When I got there, she was out on the street, working with a neighbor under the hood of her car. I saw her and immediately knew she was a McFadden. She knew who I was, too. I felt it. That's why I turned my back, because I couldn't look at you, because I felt it, too. It was an awkward beginning. 
but we ended up talking for over an hour. I asked her how things have been for her all these years. I still, like inside hurt. I'm, I'm, I'm in here hurting because I have to squeeze it down just to get through. So even I, like now, like when I go to use my name, certain bells get rung because people say McFadden. Charlotte talked about her brother and what his crimes had done to her family. She said he was pretty young when he started getting into trouble, but for her, he was always her protector. Charlotte had questions for me, too. Your mom, like, I would love to give her a hug and, and let her know that I'm glad she survived it and everything is okay, but I know somewhere in her head she got to be still going through a term oil. It's hard, probably very hard for her, and it's understandable. Yeah, you know, it's very understandable. Is is she okay now? She's okay, but it haunts her every day. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. Do you think? Do you? I think about forgiveness a lot. Mm-hmm. Because I would really like to forgive your brother, and I'm. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of me doing this too. Is I yeah want to understand him and why he did what he did, and I think. If I could forgive him, I'd feel better. Yeah. It's so hard. you haven't forgiven him yet. I feel and like I feel like I walk towards it, but when I talk to my mom mm-hmm. and see how it's still she mm-hmm. carries it, I feel like I would be disloyal to her if I forgave him. Yeah. And um so That's understandable though. Interviewing McFadden himself was something I had always thought about. And after talking with Charlotte, I felt it was the obvious next step. I wanted to sit across from him. I needed to hear if he was remorseful. If he was remorseful, maybe I could forgive him. But when I called Attica, the prison in New York where he is now, to ask about interviewing him, I was told that McFadden is in solitary confinement. He'll be there for five years. He had pulled a fake gun on prison guards. He had planned to escape. On top of that, prison officials and crime victim advocates expressed concern about my emotional safety. They described McFadden as unpredictable, and I began to fear he might say things about what happened that night that I wouldn't want to hear. Still, I tried several avenues to get to him, including through the governor's office, but I was denied permission to record. I do have some courtroom audio of him during the period of his murder convictions, just to give you an idea of who he was then. The music was added by a TV show it was used in. I guess it's an opportunity for me to say I'm remorseful. I'm sorry. Well, I'm not remorseful. I'm not sorry because I'm not guilty. Yeah, give me the maximum sentence. Matter of fact, give me a thousand years because it would make a difference. Oh, if it was possible for me to sign my own death warrant, I don't fear death because I've seen death a thousand times over. It don't make a difference to me. My dilemma now was this. If I couldn't talk to McFadden, if I couldn't see if he had changed, how could I forgive him? So I tracked down someone who had interviewed McFadden, had spent some time with him, Mark Safrick, a former profiler with the FBI. In my fantasy version of all of this, you know, I was going to end up going to meet him and we'd have a conversation in which he had some remorse and that would help. And he honestly might tell you that he's remorseful and sorry for what he did. I don't believe that that would be true. And, and uh, he will clearly understand 
who you are and, in a sense, why you're there. And I think he would make an effort to twist that in a way that would be harmful and hurtful. I don't think anything good could come out of it. So how is there resolution? Because I don't feel it. Yeah, I don't know that there is. I mean, what's the resolution? You know, the, the he's incarcerated for the rest of his life. Was it uh, was it a mistake to let him out? Absolutely. Should, should never have been let out. Um, but I don't know that there's any ever any resolution. I think certainly the the edges of those wounds get get softer, but those wounds never go away. They never heal. To forgive is honorable. It's heroic. I've always admired those who forgive perpetrators of terrible acts. I wanted to be among them. But talking to Mark Safrick, who classified McFadden as a psychopath, I understood, or maybe I should say I finally accepted, that I'd never get what I wanted from McFadden. I had made my forgiveness dependent on hearing his remorse, something he isn't capable of feeling. Without it, I realized, I'm not ready to forgive Reginald McFadden. I didn't get there. At least not yet. What I'm left with is my own remorse for something I feel guilty about. And that's what has happened to lifers in Pennsylvania. That may sound weird, but I know my testimony contributed to their current situation. Each of you is in a position to do something. You will have the opportunity to vote on legislative changes that would reduce the chances of something like this from ever happening again. You owe it to Sonia Rosenbaum, to Margaret Keirer, to Robert Silk, and to my mother. My words may have made only a small contribution to the changes that were to come, but they were still part of it. As a result of that special session on crime, the Pennsylvania State Constitution was amended to make recommendation for a commuted sentence nearly impossible. On top of that, for decades now, no politician has wanted to vote yes on commutations for fear of professional suicide. And remember, all this happened in the 1990s, the tough-on-crime era. The result? The door slammed shut on lifers. What I do remember most of all is that during the first year that I was the head of corrections in Pennsylvania, the first 12 months, and I remember feeling like, you know, the little Dutch boy with his finger in the dike. I mean, we were just sort of creating space as quickly as we could. It was a, it was a very dramatic time. Martin Horn was Pennsylvania's Secretary of Corrections under Tom Ridge. When the changes were put into place, it was Horn who had to deal with what those changes meant inside the prisons. Lifers in the Pennsylvania system are actually a very stabilizing force. They have an interest in the um, civility of life within the prison, if you will. But the uh, lifers during those several years that I was there were, were really demoralized and saw no hope of ever getting out. And a prisoner without hope is... Uh, a much more difficult prisoner to manage than a prisoner who has some hope. My name is Tyrone Works. Um, I served close to 37 years incarcerated in uh, Greedyford Prison in Pennsylvania. Um, my sentence was commuted in 2010 by former Governor Rendell, and I've been home about three years and a couple months. In 1975, Tyrone Works was involved with a robbery. Someone was killed in the process. Wirtz, who was waiting in the car, was given life without parole for second-degree murder. 
Since his sentence was commuted, Wirtz has been honored for the work he has done related to prison reform. What role would you say uh, McFadden played in your life personally? <laughs> it was huge, huge. In the 20 years leading up to Reginald McFadden, 285 lifers had their sentences commuted. In the 20 years since, there have been six, from 285 to six, and Tyrone Wirtz is one of them. When I went, it was only about 800 lifers in the whole state serving life. Now we got 5,000. McFadden kind of slammed the door shut on the lifers in Pennsylvania. To be exact, there are currently 5,352 lifers in Pennsylvania prisons. 70% are people of color. In the 80s, Wirtz and McFadden were in the same prison for a while. We inside say that there are two kinds of crimes. There are economic crimes, there are psychological crimes. McFadden had a psychological crime. Wirtz said that lifers pay close attention when someone's commutation makes it past the board and to the governor's desk. Because the one thing we know as lifers is that anybody that gets out carry the weight of the lifer population on their back. So, I mean, we, well, we talk about it all the time about who we would let out, who we wouldn't let out. And, and what was the feeling when people heard that McFadden had made it to the governor's desk? It was apprehension. It really was. I mean, I've heard that from a number of people, man, say, I hope this guy don't make it. With McFadden's rearrest and commutations essentially shut down, Wirt said a dark cloud settled over Pennsylvania prisons. As a matter of fact, I think it's still there because the hope has just been sucked out of as a possibility of life is getting out. It's just been sucked away, sucked away. Look, the day I walked out of Gradyford, they were close to 200 guys in the hallway waiting to greet me as I left. And I walked down that long corridor, weeping like a baby, crying, because I knew as I was leaving that all these guys I was hustling going to die in Pennsylvania prisons because they're not going to get the same opportunity that I have, you know. And without question, I recognize that based on the changes that were made in 1995 as a result of Reginald McFadden and the horrible crimes he committed. And I really uh, want to say that I really feel bad that this happened, had to happen to your mother, but McFadden is not representative of the broader life or population. He was truly an anomaly. Other than Reggie, I don't know a single lifer that we let go that got in trouble again. Uh, you know, they, they just kind of go out and disappear. John McCullough worked in Pennsylvania prisons for over 30 years. In fact, he was the deputy superintendent of Rockview Prison, where McFadden was before his sentence was commuted. So it is, the whole ripple effect for McFadden has been to make us, make us more conservative. Uh, why take the risk at all? Uh, just let the easy ones out. And the sad thing is in a lot of cases, the easy ones are the junkies who are going to go right out and shoot dope and get in trouble again, whereas a lot of these old lifers will, will never be a problem again. I don't know what it will take to undo what's been done in Pennsylvania. In the late 90s, a lawsuit was filed on behalf of Pennsylvania lifers for their right to a fair shot at commutation. It remained in the courts for over 10 years before it was finally dismissed. Unfortunately, success stories of lifers like Tyrone Wirtz don't create the same fervor that crimes like Reginald McFadden's do. But after spending the past two and a half years investigating the effects of this crime, I want to tell you this. When I testified in Harrisburg back in 1995, I spoke from a place of fear and anger. 
I didn't notice the political forces poised to capitalize on that. I didn't have the distance I have now to see what my testimony would be used for, what the consequences might be. Should someone have figured out what went wrong and why McFadden's sentence was commuted in the first place? Yes. And should they have fixed those problems? Absolutely. But my testimony equated all lifers with Reginald McFadden, and that's not fair. Look, I don't speak for all victims. I don't even speak for my whole family. But to set the record straight, I do believe in the possibility of second chances. My mom still suffers from post-traumatic stress, but she tells me that this whole project has made her feel a bit lighter. Um, so I'm just wondering how, how it's been for you to do this. Well, I have thought about how it shifted for me when you did, started to do this piece, talking to all these people and saying, how did it affect you? Where are you now? How often do you think about it? It feels like the community is brought in again. So it strengthens me, and I'm not alone. And she's actually been singing a little when she's driving in the car or is home by herself. I asked her if she'd sing with me, and so we did, with Johnny Cash. The other night, dear, as I lay sleeping, I dreamt I held you in my arms. When I awoke, dear, I was mistaken. So I hung my head and I cried. One last thing. I want to tell you about something my mother is spending her time on lately. She has an ancestor named Rebecca Salome Foster, who used to go into the infamous New York City prison called the Tombs to care for prisoners there. They called her the Tombs Angel. She eventually became the first female probation officer in New York. These days, my mom is working to help restore a monument dedicated to her memory. You'll never know, dear. How much I love you Please don't take my sunshine away Woo! That's enough of that. A Life Sentence Victims, Offenders, Justice, and My Mother was produced by Samantha Brown and Jay Allison for the public radio website transom.org with funding from the National Endowment for the Arts. To hear more work from Sam and Jay, visit transom.org. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Isabel Vasquez is our production assistant. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. 
The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.